Well, good morning, everybody. I think um, you probably all know me. My name's Andy. I'm one of the leaders here in this church, and it's my privilege to open up God's Word to us this morning. Though, in a way, I kind of feel Mandy's already done that. Well, wasn't it great how uh, God was speaking through her? I think we can use her more. Um, uh, She's kind of preached half of what I want to say already, but (laughs) I do want to amplify that a bit as I lead us into our summer series. Uh, We're going to be looking at several stories through uh, the book of Acts, uh, stories of the early church. We've rather audaciously entitled this series, Daring to Be the Church. Well, I don't know what you think of when somebody mentions the phrase, the church. Maybe you think of our denomination, Baptist Together, the church you grew up in. Maybe the role the established church institutions have in society. Maybe you think of your experience in the local church, joining together with friends in praise and worship as we are doing this morning, praying for one another, receiving and sharing the word of God. The early church was actually quite similar. They met, we read, to devote themselves to, to teaching, the breaking of bread and to prayer, classic Jewish practices that they continued as Christians. They met in their own homes, but also in the temple courts, interestingly, within an institution that seemed always to have been there. Yet the early church apostles knew they had a message that was different to the religion that seemed concreted in at that time. They couldn't have known their message would end up revolutionizing almost the whole world, but they couldn't stop talking about this miracle-working teacher they had met, the man Jesus, whom they were slowly realizing was the, the long-promised Messiah. He had changed their lives and turned on its head what it meant to be a God follower. Possessed with a new zeal, they were the true fundamentalists, the original radicals. The word radical is based on the Latin word radix, meaning root. So they were going back to the roots, the fundaments of their faith. They emphasized devotement to one another. They, um, they stood for everything that, that Jesus stood for. They had a focus around prayer and signs and wonders. The discipleship that he himself commanded, and of course, mission and salvation, as the Holy Spirit added to their number daily, those who were being saved. Now, in the 21st century, God may use his church in different ways to impact our communities and nation in a culture that we have seen is slowly drifting further and further away from him. The challenge to us today is not to copy those things that that the early church did. Their time was incredibly different to ours. But it is to stand for everything they stood for. Jesus' fundamental teachings of costly love, repentance, godly living, spirit-filled empowerment, and hope for all to be resurrected and saved through faith in him. It is time that we at CBC might dare to be the church. Now, Acts chapter 5, our text for today is quite a long chapter, so we don't have time to study it all. But if you want to follow me in your Bibles, I'll be going from the start of the chapter, but skimming through selected verses until we come to verse 28 onwards. 
But before we look at the uncompromising faith of Peter and the early apostles, I'm, I'm really pleased actually that law, the, the author Luke was honest enough to include this first story of Ananias and Sapphira as they provide a real contrast to what we'll see later. You see, it had become common practice in, uh, the, among the believers to share in the early church everything they had. In the previous chapter, chapter 4, it tells us from time to time, those who owned property and fields and land, they sold them and brought the money from those sales and put it at the apostles' feet so that that could be distributed to everyone who had need. This couple, Ananias and Sapphira, did the same thing selling their land and giving the proceeds to the hardship fund. And to anyone watching, it looked as if Ananias and Sapphira were continuing this noble and sacrificial tradition. The trouble was that they'd agreed with themselves to keep some of the money back for themselves. The apostle Peter, through a word of knowledge, called Ananias out and says, as we read in verse 4, you have lied, not just to human beings, but to God. Well, God's judgment is swift. He drops down dead. Then Sapphira is challenged about it, not knowing what had happened to her husband. Peter asks her directly, and she confirms their story. This was the price they got for the land. Then she collapses and dies as well. Not surprisingly, in verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about those events. I bet it did. I don't know about you, but I am very glad the Lord deals a lot more in grace in these times than in righteous anger and judgment, because I too will be guilty of some things. Now, we don't have time to analyze this story. You could preach a sermon about it itself, but it seems what the Lord wanted to kill stone dead was the deceit and the hypocrisy. And how often do we hear that as a criticism leveled against the church? The unstated expectation and deliberate impression given was that this was the full amount. Ananias, though, had the right to do with his money what he liked. If he wanted to keep some of it back for himself, he had the right to do so. But the problem was, he presented it as if it was all of it. They wanted to present themselves as more generous than they actually were. And although they probably didn't realize it, it was there in this mindset that they had first compromised, they might have failed Mandy's test. And actually, so would I, so many, many times. You see, God knows my inward life of struggles as well as my outward appearance. Like Ananias and Sapphira, I can't lie to the Holy Spirit. Only a week or so ago, when we were trying to park the car somewhere, I was feeling stressed and in a hurry. My wife was alarmed at the uh, speed of which I was trying to do so. And um, I'm sorry to say, a casual listener in the car might, might have heard some words I would regret them hearing. Sometimes I might think in my mind, don't panic, darling, I know what I'm doing. But in the heat of the moment, it might come out a bit differently. Maybe some others of you can empathize. God knows our thoughts as well as our words and our deeds. And that's actually one of the reasons why I love the Anglican Confession of Faith so well. Because the truth is, none of us can pretend to have it all together. All of us are mere pilgrims along the journey to full holiness in Christ. And compromising the word of God is something we all too easily do. It was great to hear that definition of compromise compromise earlier. And then uh, Mandy unpacked that also to mean how we can choose to settle for second best 
to accept standards that I know are lower than God's. Why? Frankly, it's easier. And maybe I'm lazy. How do, how do I allow that to happen? Maybe I've allowed my thinking to be colored by the culture of this world. Maybe I've allowed my judgment to become clouded. Maybe I'm simply tired. A lot of us are at our weakest when we're like that. Most likely, I've not kept in close enough fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And so Luke deliberately contrasts the events surrounding Ananias and Sapphira with people who it seems were continually full of the Holy Spirit, the apostles. They performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, Luke continues from verse 12 onwards. More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Crowds gathered from around the towns around Jerusalem, bringing those who were ill and those who were tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Wouldn't you like to see a return to that kind of ministry? Wow. Of course, when so much good was being done in the name of the Lord God, it was bound to attract opposition. And so we see. Peter and John had already been sanctioned by the court of the Sanhedrin, who were the ruling council of the temple. They forbade them from speaking the name of Jesus in the temple courtyards. But the apostles refused to stop, openly ignoring the court's order. The court met again and had them arrested and put in jail. Not a problem for the Lord. He sent an angel at night, opened the doors and let them out. But here's where it gets really interesting. The angel told them to go back and continue doing exactly what they'd been forbidden from doing. He said in verse 20, go, stand in the temple courts and tell all the people about this new life. That message is too good to be kept secret. Well, that left the apostles with a dilemma. Would they obey the high priest and all his elders? I'm an elder. I I can sympathize with that. They'd forbidden them to speak about Jesus. Or would they obey the angel who told them to speak the words of life? For Peter... There was no dilemma. He had to obey what he took to be a heavenly messenger of God. Hearing more of the same hubbub as the day before, the high priest reconvened the Sanhedrin to find out what was going on. He was frustrated to be told that the men they had arrested had escaped and were added again back in the temple courts preaching Jesus. They were rearrested, and the high priest questioned them again in verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. This was Peter's moment of decision as leaders of the apostles. Ought he simply to accept they had all the power and authority? If he disobeyed them again, what would his next punishment be? Would it be right to drag all the other apostles into this as well? He could perhaps still walk away with dignity. Maybe he could continue preaching Jesus just a bit further away from the temple in among the other crowds of the city. What would you do? What would I do as leader? Peter and the other apostles replied in verse 29 onwards, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. 
God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When the elders and the chief priests heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But there was one Pharisee who spoke up for them. He reminded the Sanhedrin of two men who had led revolts then were killed, and all of their followers were scattered, and it all came to nothing. Therefore, he added in verse 38, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if, it is, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Wow, that from a Jew. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. That doesn't sound like a victory to me, but then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin and they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Friends, I wonder, what was it that enabled Peter and the apostles to have the confidence not to compromise the gospel in the way that I so easily might? How can we have confidence to do the same? I've got five possible building blocks of reasons that I'll go through, but I'll promise you I will be very quick. Firstly, we can know our security in Christ Jesus. Our security in him does not come from the things we do, but the things he has done. There is nothing we can do that will make him love us anymore. And there is nothing we can do that will make him love us any less. Knowing that, we can step out in faith. We can learn to obey the Holy Spirit's promptings. And the deeper we know God's love for us, the less inclined we'll be to compromise his commands and principles and risk upsetting him. Arising directly from that point too, don't be a people pleaser, be a God pleaser. With our security in God, we don't need the approval of men and women. I, I love and respect you all, but I don't need your approval because I've already got that from the one in heaven who will always love us. Till, till the very end of time. The root cause of Ananias and Sapphira's sin was that they were people pleasers. This led to their hypocrisy and lying to the Holy Spirit. They were more concerned with what other people thought of them than they were about what God thought of their sin. You can tie yourselves in knots pleasing people and end up burning yourself out. I've been there. You will never manage to please everybody at once. And some people from their own insecurities will never be happy, whatever you do. International evangelist and author, Dr. Miles Monroe said this, we manifest character. That's a word that's very prescient for our times. We manifest character when self-sacrifice for the sake of our principles becomes more important than compromise for the sake of popularity. 
Block number three, your citizenship is in heaven. Peter and the apostles knew their ultimate leader was Christ Jesus. Paul would later describe this as being no longer citizens of this earth, but of heaven. Now, this doesn't mean that the apostles were free to disobey the laws of the land, but it does mean that they were now subject to an additional higher authority. They said, we must obey God rather than human beings. Yet, also, Paul writes in Romans 13, he instructs us to obey the governing authorities, for they've been established by God. So, it kind of sets up this dichotomy, this kind of tightrope that the Christian is to walk. But where the laws of man directly contradict God's laws, we have an imperative to obey our higher authority. Fourthly, be discerning. Be discerning over what you will and what you won't compromise over. The writers of the Got Questions website helpfully suggest we should compromise on preferences, but not principles. This harks back to what Mandy was saying. We know, don't we, that compromise is vital in so many things in human relationships, in maintaining a happy and long-lasting marriage. Often we need to defer to our loved ones. I need to learn that more. Unless that means breaking God's commands. Be careful what principles you compromise on too. We are not called to break the law over every matter of church discipline, uh, church doctrine. And we are called to maintain unity with our brothers and sisters. So prayer and the leading of the Spirit are essential. Which is why point five is be filled with the Spirit. As Peter and the apostles were, they rebelled against the temple authorities in obedience of an angel. They didn't see that that was some kind of human that had broken into the jail. They recognized the heavenly nature of what they saw. How? How indeed had Peter been transformed from a frightened man just a few weeks earlier to someone who had boldly proclaimed the gospel in all its truth and promise and be arrested and imprisoned for the sake of it? Of course, the Holy Spirit. He made that difference. Not only will he give us that boldness, but also as Jesus said in Luke 12 and verse 12, in what would now seem to be a direct foreshadowing of the events that they were just experiencing, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. The apostles refused to compromise the words of God. They knew that there'd be a price to pay, and they were willing to pay that. Of course, We've seen that wasn't the end of the story. Indeed, it was only the beginning. And we'll look more and more about uh, the exploits of the Holy Spirit through them. And also with this sympathetic uh, Pharisee, it was obvious that the hidden hand of God, and we've seen through the, recently through the book of Esther, was working again. Essentially, he said, let the proof of the pudding be in the eating. And how prophetic was that warning? But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men you will only find yourselves fighting against God. This sermon could easily have been entitled Unstoppable. It's become a truism that the local, the local church is the hope of the world. There is no plan B for God. He's relying on every member to play a role in extending his church ever further. So what are you doing? 
What more can I do to play a part in that? Nicky Gumbel, in his Bible in One Year devotional, tells this story, and with this I'll draw to a close. It's a story of two women in Iran, Mariam and Messiah, who were brought up as Muslims but converted to Christ. They were arrested in 2009. Their crime? Being Christians and evangelizing. They were blindfolded, interrogated, and suffering in human conditions. They became ill during their time in prison. They were taken back to court. Mr. Haddad, the prosecuting lawyer, asked the two women if they were Christians. We love Jesus, they replied. He repeated his question, and they responded, yes, we are Christians. Mr. Haddad asked whether they regretted becoming Christians, to which they replied, we have no regrets. Then he stated to them emphatically, you should renounce your faith verbally and in written form. They stood firm, and they replied, we will not deny our faith. When Mr. Haddad told the woman to return to prison to think about their options and to come back to him when they were ready to comply, Mariam and Mazia responded, we have already done our thinking. Despite everything, these women were determined to share the gospel. And they started to view their prison as a church. Now, what difference would it make if we're in the trials of life to readjust our perspective on things and to see how God could work through that? In prison, they brought many people to Christ and made friendships that would last a lifetime. Having been released after international pressure, they told their story to the world. Mariam states, we believe that it was God's plan for us to be in that prison for nine months. We had great opportunities to share the message with many prisoners. Friends, family, we may have no idea how God will use our our uncompromising faith to advance his kingdom. Hopefully we might never get sent to prison for it. But God may surprise us if we take a risk and trust him. My children watch a lot of sci-fi and fantasy cartoons, and a very common trope in them is the power that your worst fear has over you. Conquer that, and you gain all supernatural power to defeat the enemy and save your people. I'm not going to try and Christianize that. We know that all supernatural power in the Holy Spirit is already available to us to defeat the enemy. But did you know we can limit the Holy Spirit's activity in our lives through fear. I wonder what fears you might have. The biggest fear I have right now, besides losing my job and house and the luxurious lifestyle to which I've grown accustomed, <laughs> is actually losing my, my family and wife and being all alone. Yet I know that even that is something many of us in this church have already had to face. And you've done so in the strength of God, and I admire those of you for that. When we are able to give over our biggest fear to God, in a sense to commit it to Christ, along with our sin that he has paid for, it is then that God's power can work its greatest in our lives. One thing is for sure, if we allow the Holy Spirit in to change and sanctify every aspect of our lives, he will challenge and change us in ways we might never have expected. 
It might seem a little scary sometimes, but remember, our confidence is in the Lord, as we've sung. We are secure in him, and he will only ever act out of love. You know, when you preach a sermon like this, the, the devil accuses you, as he did this morning as I was cycling here, encouraging people to change the world. Change the world? You can't even change yourself, he might tell us. Well, the next time the devil accuses you of that, you send him back in because he has already been defeated. Christ has won the victory on the cross. That's perfect tense, accomplished, happened. And it is him that is working in and through us who will give us that victory over sin. It's he that gives us the strength not to compromise. All he is asking is for us to say yes in everything. Evangelist and author Simon Gilbo writes, following Jesus is meant to be an adventure. The journey is unpredictable, full of unexpected detours, sometimes distractions, dangers too. But we can have the confidence in the one who's leading the way. He's the good shepherd. He looks back and asks us whether we're willing to follow him wherever he chooses to take us. So the challenge is there for you and for me. Will you partner with him in a commitment to radical, uncompromising discipleship? This is a dangerous prayer, I'll warn you. But if you're willing to join me in this, do so. After which the worship group will come back and lead us further in our response. Let's pray. Father God, Lord Jesus, I hear your call to wholehearted full-on commitment to you. You already have my heart. I'm sorry for taking back some of that control and not letting you into every part of my life. I am prepared to commit to you, but to be honest, I'm a little scared. Help me to trust you 100%. I know that you love me. I know that you wouldn't bring anything into my life that wasn't for my best. I just struggle with being out of control. Help me to give that back over to you fully. Once again, I commit to following you all my life. Please be gentle with me in your grace, yet I will do as you please. Strengthen me by your Holy Spirit to stand up to everything the evil one and my own temptations might pose. May your will be done entirely in my life as it is in heaven. Amen.